What do Robert Heinlein and the philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau have in common? Does Starship Troopers advocate for a fascist society? Can humans and bugs ever coexist peacefully? Coming up on Social Science Fiction. You're listening to Social Science Fiction, a podcast that blends political science and nerd culture, examining the politics of science fiction and fantasy. Hi there. Today we're beginning a series of episodes on the work of science fiction writer Robert Heinlein. Now, when I started this podcast, I knew I wanted to do a couple or a few Heinlein episodes because he's one of my favorite science fiction writers of all time. Starship Troopers in particular was an important book for me growing up. And I've always found Heinlein as a writer and as a political thinker fascinating. And I particularly find Heinlein interesting because I think you can see an interesting evolution of his political philosophy over time in his writing. I think you can see certain elements change, certain ideas evolve, while also seeing certain consistencies. In other words, I think there is a core Heinlein philosophy that is fairly consistent in his work, and if you read through a lot of his novels, you can pull out certain strains of thought, certain ideas that are sprinkled throughout a lot of his work and remain consistent, while at the same time seeing a larger set of ideas change and evolve as he apparently thought about these things more, had more life experiences, saw the world changing around him. And so what we're left with I think is a body of work that is marked by certain consistencies, but also marked by significant differences in tone and in philosophy. And I thought it would be fun to break down a few of his books that really do a good job of covering, in a way, the entire political spectrum, showing Heinlein's more conservative influences, his more liberal influences, his libertarian influences, while at the same time exhibiting certain commonalities throughout his work. And for the first episode in this series, I want to talk about Starship Troopers. Now, this isn't the first book chronologically that he wrote, and I realize maybe I should start with his first book, For Us the Living, but Starship Troopers is my favorite book, and it's my show, so we're doing it this way. So today I want to talk about Starship Troopers, and I think if you don't know a lot about Heinlein, or if you're only familiar with him through his most famous works, particularly I think Stranger in a Strange Land will stand out as his probably most well-known, most beloved book. I could be wrong about this, but I think most people who are familiar at all with Heinlein, that's probably the first thing to think of. And so if you're mostly familiar with that book or some other stuff he's written, I suspect Starship Troopers kind of stands out as the odd exception to his general style, where a lot of his work tends to give off more of a hippie-ish vibe. There's a lot of free love, live and let live. It all feels very progressive and almost left-wing in its style. Starship Troopers comes off as far more conservative, far more supportive of traditional values, and far more aggressive and militaristic. So militaristic, in fact, that it's led some critics to argue that Starship Troopers and Heinlein were crypto-fascist, sort of 
of secretly advocating for a fascist style of government. Now, we'll get into that in a little bit. I tend to think that accusation is a bit unfair, but I can see how people get there and it's worth talking about. For my part, like I said at the start, I personally love this book. It was one of the early science fiction books I read growing up. One of the first science fiction books I read that was very overtly political. And I credit it with being one of the early influences, not necessarily on my personal political philosophy, but one of the early influences on me and encouraging me to explore politics and get more into science fiction and arguably get me more into kind of combining these things, exploring the politics of science fiction. So I love Starship Troopers, if nothing else, for that. It really did spark an early interest for me in science fiction and in politics and political thought. And while I think, again, Starship Troopers in some ways stands out as the conservative book in Heinlein's oeuvre, I'd argue there are still some consistent ideas, some consistent themes and values in Starship Troopers that we're going to see in his other works running throughout the course of all his work. So let's get into it. First, basic background on the book itself. Starship Troopers, originally published in 1959, it was apparently written very quickly, Heinlein coming up with the idea, deciding to write the book in response to the United States declaring that it intended to suspend nuclear testing. Background for what was happening, we're getting into the Cold War, United States versus Soviet Union, and we're seeing the beginnings of the arms race with both the United States and Soviet Union seeking to develop bigger, more powerful, more destructive nuclear weapons, and both sides testing these bombs and growing concern that more states beyond the United States and Soviet Union are also now engaged in nuclear research, testing, and so on. So we're starting to see the beginnings of concern about nuclear proliferation beyond the United States and Soviet Union, and also just general concern that the United States and Soviet Union are going to get themselves into an arms race that is going to lead to mutual destruction. And so we're seeing at the end of the 50s, and this is something that will continue off and on through the 60s, 70s, 80s, attempts between the United States and Soviet Union at various times to slow the nuclear testing down, slow down the development of nuclear weapons. And 1959 marked an attempt by the Eisenhower administration to do just that, announcing that we're going to suspend nuclear testing in the hopes that it will lead to a deal between both great powers to mutually begin suspending testing. And this attempt at suspending nuclear testing on both sides, the attempt at developing a formal treaty, ultimately failed, at least this attempt. But we still saw the Eisenhower administration attempting to take steps in that direction. And this apparently infuriated Heinlein, who thought that the United States should not suspend testing, certainly not unilaterally. If anything, the United States should be engaged in more testing, more nuclear development, taking a stronger stand against the Soviet Union. And apparently that is what prompted him to come up with the idea for Starship Troopers. And when we get into the international relations element of Starship Troopers, I think it becomes very clear what kind of message Heinlein is trying to deliver and how this relates to what's going on in the world in the context of the Cold War at the time. So that's the context in which this book is written. And for those of you who have never read the book or only got an idea of the story from 
the Paul Verhoeven film Starship Troopers, which I'll probably also talk about and rant about at the end of this episode. But anyway, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the story, the basics of Starship Troopers is this. It is the far future. Humanity has united into a single global and beginning to be galactic government, a single human state, a single human civilization based on Earth with some colonies as humanity is beginning to branch out into the rest of the galaxy. And so when the book begins, the Terran Federation is at war with an alien species known colloquially by most people as the Bugs. Although, in fact, Heinlein specifically tells us that they are not technically bugs, they are closer to what he calls pseudo-arachnids, and they are possessed of intelligence comparable to human beings and possibly sentience, although that is, to some degree, left ambiguous. But anyway, that is the background for Starship Troopers. You have humanity under the rule of this Terran Federation, and specifically a Federation. Heinlein gives the impression that it is a government where there is a central government that holds significant power, while at the same time, a lot of power is devolved to, granted to, smaller regional governments. So you get the sense that Europe and South America and North America and so on, as regions, have their own regional governments that have some power, some authority, and so on, and there's still a great deal of cultural difference between these different regions, while at the same time it all being under the control of this larger federal government. And so that's the core background for the book. Terran Federation versus the pseudo-arachnids. Humans versus the bugs. And the book follows the life and experiences of Juan Rico, often referred to by his friends as John or Johnny, as he joins the Terran Federation's military, specifically joining the mobile infantry, and experiences his own piece of the war against the bugs. And the story is told through a lot of flashbacks and side notes where where we see the main character remembering experiences from his high school days or briefly describing things that he's heard about going on in other parts of the galaxy and so on. But for the most part, it's following Juan Rico as he, out of high school, joins the military and then rises through the ranks of the military, being promoted, taking part in battles, and so on. And notably, the story ends without any kind of resolution of that main story. The book ends with humanity still at war with the bugs on the eve of a significant battle where humans are about to attempt an assault on the bug homeworld, but we're left unsure if that will be the end of the war, if humans are going to win. It leaves us with everything still up in the air. And it goes to show that Heinlein clearly was not interested primarily in telling a war story with a beginning, middle, and an end. He was far more interested in using this story as a means to communicate certain political and philosophical ideas. That makes up the core of the book. Well, we have descriptions of exciting battles as Rico and his comrades fight the bugs and briefly fight another alien species at the beginning of the book. The core of the book, the real meat of it, is Rico flashing back to lectures by his high school philosophy teacher, Rico describing experiences, speaking with commanding officers, Rico sitting through lectures during his office 
officer training. That is the meat of the book, as characters speak to Rico and explain the philosophy, the politics of the society they live in. That really is the core of the book. And again, this is Heinlein mostly trying to present his own philosophy, his own political theory, through this Terran Federation, which he presents as a very successful, desirable model of government. And so getting into the specifics of this society, the specifics of their politics, I think the thing that stands out the most for people who read the book or people who see the movie is the distinction within the Starship Troopers universe, within the Terran Federation, between citizens and civilians. What Heinlein tells us is within this future society, not everyone is automatically a citizen. Not everyone has full political rights. When you're born, you are a civilian. You have all of the civil rights you would expect a person to have in a liberal democracy, a right to free speech, a right to practice your religion as you choose, a right to assembly, a right to protest, a right to a free press, a right to own property, to compete freely in the economy, and so on. But what you do not have is a right to vote, or really to participate in any significant way in the political process. You can certainly, again, through exercising your free speech, talk about politics, express your opinions about politics, but you cannot vote, you cannot run for or hold political office. These things are restricted to citizens. And anyone within the Terran Federation is free to become a citizen, but it requires giving some form of service to the state. So from the time you turn 18, at any point in your life, you are free to go down to a government office building, apply for federal service, and if you give two years of your life in this service, at the end of that, you will be granted full citizenship. You now have a right to vote, a right to run for office, and so on. Now, the way it's described in the book, you ultimately do not get to choose what kind of service you will do. Once you sign up, you're agreeing to do whatever job, take whatever position the government tells you they want you to do. Although you can apparently make your preferences known. You can rank a set of choices ranging from working in the military to doing some kind of other foreign service or performing mining operations on a dangerous planet or asteroid or so on. And there's an early conversation between Rico and the man signing him up for federal service who tells him essentially, look, if we don't need you for anything else, if we find you're not good enough to do anything else, we'll have you counting the hairs on caterpillars all day. The point is, no matter what you're capable of or incapable of, if you sign up for service, you have a right to perform that service and earn your citizenship, we'll find some job for you. The point is we want to at least make it something difficult and unpleasant. But we will find something for you to do. And ultimately, you don't have a choice. You'll give preferences, but it comes down to what are you capable of? What are our needs right now? And Rico, when he signs up, quickly discovers that because he was kind of a goof off in school and really doesn't have a whole lot of other skills, he really does not qualify for a lot of the things he apparently would rather be doing. And so he's assigned to the mobile infantry. Now, this is a really interesting concept. And I suspect it's a contributing factor to a lot of people getting this fascist vibe from Heinlein. The idea that you're not born a citizen. The idea that not only is citizenship not considered a right, but the only way that you can earn citizenship is through service to the state. 
And Heinlein spends a lot of time explaining why this society functions like this, why this is an element of the Terran Federation's political system. And the argument Heinlein makes through various characters, the high school philosophy teacher, instructors in officer training school, and so on, the argument Heinlein makes is that the failing of democracies in the past was that by giving everybody the right to vote automatically, A, Nobody appreciated it and therefore did not take it seriously. And B, it ensured that most people who were voting really were not thinking about anything but themselves. The argument is democracies of the past failed because people didn't appreciate their right to vote. They didn't really appreciate the responsibility that they were taking on by choosing how their government was going to function, what policies were going to be adopted, and so didn't treat it with the care and thought it deserved. And this is an important idea for Heinlein. He makes very clear throughout the course of the book that he's not arguing that his proposed system ensures that only smart people become citizens again, it's open to everybody. No matter how intelligent you are, you have a right to apply to be a citizen and perform two years of service and get your citizenship. It doesn't ensure that only smart people get the job. It doesn't ensure that only responsible people get the job. It simply ensures that the people who get their citizenship will, because they have worked for it, appreciate it, and because they have made a sacrifice on behalf of the state, because they have given two years of their life, at least, to the service of others, because they have made some kind of sacrifice, they have indicated that they are willing to put the state, they are willing to put their fellow human beings above their own interests. When you go and do two years of service, you're giving up time in your life, you're putting forth effort on behalf of others. And this is Heinlein's argument, that if we limit the franchise, if we limit the right to vote to those who have specifically agreed to take on this responsibility and who have put in this effort, we ensure that while we haven't made the electorate necessarily smarter or more knowledgeable, we've at least ensured that we have an electorate that takes their job as voters seriously. And we have limited our electorate to people who we hope have a mindset that says, I care more about the common good. I care more about what is best for everybody, what is best for society, what is best for the state, than I care about my own personal interests. Again, the Heinlein argument, democracy of the past failed because people voted for what they wanted. People voted for what was best for them as individuals. And it led to bad policies and the ultimate collapse of these states. Now, Heinlein solution, it's an interesting idea idea, but the larger concept he's grappling with, who should be in the electorate, how do we determine who gets a say in government, this is something philosophers and political scientists have been grappling with for centuries. The fear that a political system, a government poorly constructed, will ultimately end up seeking the interests of some narrow group rather than the common good. These are concerns we've been grappling with for a long time. This is something the American found fathers dealt with explicitly in their debates about how to structure the new federal government they were creating, about how to draft a new constitution. How do we construct a new government that is a true republic? Republic, a word derived from the Latin res and publica. Publica meaning public and res meaning concern or thing. In other words, how do we construct a republic, a government that is concerned with the public interest, the public good? That's what the American founders were interested in. It's what a lot of political philosophers going back to the ancient Greeks were concerned with. How can we construct a government that will not pursue the interests of a single monarch or a wealthy elite 
or the masses at the expense of the interests of some minority group? How do we construct a government that looks out for the best for the entire society? Now, the American founders found a lot of inspiration in the Enlightenment thinkers of Europe, notably men like Voltaire, like John Locke. And they also found a lot of inspiration in the ancient Roman Republic, which had a significant influence on how the new American government was ultimately constructed, emphasizing a division between the branches of government, separate legislature and executive and judicial branches, keeping these various branches of government competing with each other, and so on, and also mixing what the Romans and the American founders saw as sort of the strong points of various more traditional forms of government, monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy. Something that I think a lot of Americans are not very clear on and makes a lot of other Americans uncomfortable, the United States was not designed to be a pure democracy. The idea of the new American Republic was that it would have democratic elements alongside monarchical and aristocratic elements. The Senate in particular was meant to be a much more aristocratic element of our government where the wise, learned, elite members of society would have a say in kind of temper the opinions, the will of the common people, the masses. But anyway, these are the inspirations of the American founders in crafting their government. These were their inspirations in creating a system that would seek the common good, that would seek the res publica over any private interest. Keep very factions competing with one another. Ensure that many different interests have a voice in government and they're always competing with each other so no one group can overpower the others. Now I'd argue Heinlein is trying to solve the same puzzle trying to figure out how do we create a system that will achieve the common good. But he finds more inspiration, whether he knows it or not, in the philosophy of another Enlightenment thinker, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And what I think Heinlein is sort of channeling here is Rousseau's ideas about what he called the general will. Now, Rousseau didn't originally coin the term general will, but he wrote a lot about it. And he wrote a lot about how seeking the general will is vital for achieving balance and a healthy political system. What he wrote about was making a distinction between the individual will, what any individual wants, and what is best for everybody, the general will, the common good. And Rousseau emphasized the idea that a state should always seek the general will. A healthy state is a state in which the government consistently knows and understands and interprets the general will and consistently pursues that general will for the good of everybody. And Rousseau further made the argument that in a truly healthy society, a truly healthy political system, the individual will and the general will should ultimately line up because individuals should recognize, I am part of the society and the state the society in the state is me. The general will, the interests of the society are my interests. And the problem occurs when people miss this point, when people pursue what they perceive as their own individual interests and disregard the general will, which they should recognize is what they should have been pursuing all along. This was Rousseau's argument. And I'm, of course, oversimplifying this to a significant degree, but that's the core of it. And I'd argue that's what Heinlein is really 
calling for here, a system that ensures the electorate is composed solely of people who recognize the distinction between individual will and general will, who see the need in pursuing the general will, the people who have recognized that ultimately, while there is a distinction between the two, their individual will is the general will. Heinlein is trying to create a system wherein the electorate is limited to those people who will pursue the general will. So whether he knew it or not, and I haven't been able to find anything where Heinlein specifically references Rousseau, but whether he knew it or not, I think this is really the philosophy that Heinlein is channeling. I think the strongest support for this idea comes from a quote from an instructor during Rico's officer training program. The officer giving a course in political philosophy and explaining the basis for their political system says, quote, under our system, every voter and office holder is a man who has demonstrated through voluntary and difficult service that he places the welfare of the group ahead of personal advantage. In other words, we've ensured that the only people who vote are people who place the group ahead of themselves, people who pursue the general will. They're not necessarily the smartest, not necessarily the most knowledgeable, the most skilled, but they do get the general will, or at the very least want to pursue it. Now, I think this is an interesting idea, and we'll circle back to this when we talk about the fascist accusations against Heinlein and Starship Troopers. But for now, suffice to say, while this is an interesting idea, it's certainly not the kind of idea you would expect from a live-and-let-live hippie. It's very much more emphasizing personal responsibility and loyalty to the state, loyalty to a cause. It's an interesting idea coming from Heinlein, if, again, you're only familiar with him from some of his other works. But let's put that aside for a second. Let's talk about another core political message that comes through in Starship Troopers. Let's talk about Heinlein's views of international relations, his views of how states interact with each other. Now, what comes through in the book, I'd argue, is a very practical, very pragmatic, some would say dark or pessimistic or bleak view of human nature and view of the international system. The message that comes through in the book is war is kind of inevitable. And it's ultimately inevitable because resources are scarce. Heinlein, through an instructor in officer training school, makes the argument that all wars, including the Crusades of medieval times, were ultimately about land and resources. Ultimately, that's what all war boils down to. We can dress it up with ideology and belief, religion, and so on, but it ultimately comes down to land and resources. Various states, peoples, civilizations, once you get into the sci-fi stuff, various species are ultimately all looking out for themselves. They're looking to expand, take control of more territory, take control of more resources so they can survive. And because all of these things are finite, conflict between them is really sort of inevitable. And further, any civilization, state, species that tries to reject this idea any group that tries to say, no, we're not going to play this game, we're not going to go to war with others over resources, we're not going to try to expand, while noble will ultimately be wiped out by some other force who isn't so noble. And so the only way we can hope to survive is to play this game, to play this expand, become more powerful, take resources game. 
and those who don't, by a process of natural selection, will sort of be weeded out, and ultimately what will be left are those who decided to get in on the power and resource game. Now, anyone who studied international relations before, and specifically studied international relations theory, will probably be hearing a lot of stuff that sounds very familiar right now, because a lot of this fits very well with the international relations theory known as realism. Now, this is arguably the dominant school of thought among scholars of international relations, although there are others, but it's probably the dominant school of thought, and it says that wars occur, that conflict is sort of inevitable, for the very reasons Heinlein argues. What realists argue is states are ultimately rational and self-interested. It's human nature to be most concerned about yourself, your own interests, and to rationally pursue those interests. And the states that human beings create and build up are going to have that same nature. States ultimately are interested in rationally pursuing their own interests to the best of their ability. And what is a state's primary interest? It's always going to be survival, to continue to exist. And so you have a bunch of states in this international system, all seeking to survive, and all knowing the only way I can really survive, the only way I can ensure my survival, is if I have enough power, enough military might, to defeat any potential rivals who might want to take me out. And each state also knows that all the other states must be thinking along the same lines. And so we get this mutual recognition among all the states that we're going to have to start gobbling up resources, land, to make ourselves more powerful. Because if I don't do it, the other guy is going to do it, and now there's nothing to stop him from taking me out and taking my stuff so he gets more powerful and has a better shot at survival. So we're thrown into this conflict because there's just limited stuff to go around, and the only way we can try to ensure our survival is to fight with our rivals or potential rivals for the means to build ourselves up, the means to defend ourselves. Now that's realism in a nutshell, and of course I'm, again, oversimplifying. But that's really the message that comes through in Starship Troopers. And I'd also add, advocates of realism, they're not arguing this happens because human beings are evil. This isn't about human nature being this evil force where we are just warlike and violent and belligerent and want to kill each other. It's not that. It's not that we hate each other or want to go to war with each other. In fact, just the opposite. We don't want to go to war because war means we might die. And so it's not that we seek war. It's not that we are evil and violent and greedy. It's simply that we're trapped in this system where there's no alternative. We can't afford to be peaceful and cooperative. We have to always be looking over our shoulder. We always have to be looking out for our best interests because we know if we don't, no one else is going to. And now there are, of course, competing theories of international relations that argue we can break out of this system and achieve a lasting peace and find something better. But for realists, the argument is we really can't, as much as we might want to, get out of this. But again, the important thing is it's not about people being evil or inherently warlike. It's about everybody is just selfish, looking out for their best interests. And this also comes through in Starship Troopers. Heinlein always seems careful not to present the bugs as this evil force. They're not the evil alien overlords you see in a lot of other science fiction. They're not presented as these beings who are just driven to destruction. They want to kill humans because kill all the humans. They really are presented as a species that's just engaged in the same expansion that humans are. We're simply in conflict with each other because we both know there might only be room in this galaxy for one of us. And so conflict is kind of inevitable and it doesn't make us the bad guy. It doesn't make them the bad guy. But we want to survive. We think our system 
system, our values are better, so we'd rather see those survive. We'd rather see those win out over our opponents. And it doesn't make them bad, but it means that we have to defeat them if we want to survive ourselves. Now, again, this is interesting because it's Heinlein adopting what can be interpreted as a much more conservative political position. Now, that's not to say only conservatives are realists. You can actually find people across the political spectrum, liberals, progressives, who would also probably be classified as realists. So it's not to say realism is exclusive to conservatism, but realism has traditionally been a favorite theoretical framework of conservatives. It is the basis for conservative calls for a stronger military, for putting more money into the military budget, for developing bigger, more powerful weapons, and so on. When you hear conservatives in the United States or other places say, we need to build up our military, we can't have a weak military, usually they'll fall back on, whether they know it or not, realist talking points. The idea that the world is inherently chaotic, conflict is inevitable, and the only way to protect ourselves is to look out for our own interests, make sure we are strong. So, while you can find realists all over the place, tends to be a favorite of conservatives. And again, you have Heinlein adopting a much more conservative position than you might expect given some of his other writings. And further, I'd say this is probably the core message Heinlein wanted to deliver with this book. Given that it's written in response to the U.S. saying we're going to stop nuclear testing, I think this is really the core of what Heinlein is trying to communicate. Heinlein is trying to deliver a message that suspects spending nuclear testing, trying to cooperate with the Soviet Union on something like this is naive. We are in conflict with the Soviet Union because we're both great powers. We're both trying to dominate the same territory and only one of us can win. We can't be so naive as to think we can get out of this conflict. We have to meet this conflict head on, recognize that conflict is sort of inevitable and the best way we can survive is to be stronger than the other guy. And really, the only way we could hope to avoid conflict is to be so much more powerful that the other side won't dare challenge us. So this, I think, is the core message that Heinlein is trying to deliver. Now, having said all that, I don't think it would be fair to say that Heinlein is a Dr. Strangelove, let's just push the button, drop the bombs and see what happens kind of guy. He clearly expresses a desire to avoid more conflict than is necessary, a desire to match aggression to what's needed in a given situation and not exceed that. And I think this comes through in the knife throwing scene. This is a scene that takes place while Rico is still in basic training, still in boot camp. And in addition to learning how to use all the complex weaponry of this modern futuristic army, the power armor and the drop capsules and all the futuristic weapons and so on, he and his fellow trainees are also taught how to throw knives. And during this training exercise, a cadet asks the drill instructor, why are we bothering to learn this? Given modern technology, given the fact that we have nuclear weapons and conflict could just be ended with the push of a button, why are we learning something so primitive as throwing knives at one another? And the drill instructor essentially responds with a short lecture on the importance of proportional response 
the need to occasionally limit the amount of force applied in a given situation. And further, a short side note on the importance of a distinction between civilian and military leadership. The drill instructor says, yes, we live in a time when everything could be ended with nuclear weapons and maybe something like that could occur, but it's not always necessary to resort to that sort of overwhelming force. It's not always advisable to resort to that sort of overwhelming force. We may find ourselves in a situation where we don't want to annihilate an enemy like that. We may want to resort to something smaller, something much more precise. And further makes the argument that we in the military, it's not for us to decide what kind of force is going to be applied. It's for our civilian leaders to make that decision. Our elected officials get to say when and where we go to war and how much force is going to be applied. And then it's the military higher-ups who decide exactly how that force is going to be delivered once the when and the where and the how much have been determined. And it's us, Grunt's job simply to deliver it. So two things coming out of this. One, the civil-military relations piece, the argument that there should be a clear distinction in government between civilian rule and military power, that the civilian government gets to ultimately call the shots. The civilian government says when we go to war, where we go to war, why we go to war. The military carries it out. The military can say this is the best way to accomplish what you want to accomplish, but the military doesn't get to make any decisions beyond that. An important point, and something that actually came up in a previous episode when we talked about the politics of Warhammer. So Heinlein making a brief statement in favor of clear, explicit civilian control of the military. But the other piece of this is the idea of proportional response. The idea that we don't want to escalate every conflict immediately to thermonuclear war. This is in fact a debate that was taking shape around the time he wrote this book. And what Heinlein is calling for is, I'd argue, essentially what the Kennedy administration would call flexible response. You see, during the Eisenhower presidency, the Eisenhower administration adopted a policy towards the Soviet Union known as massive retaliation. And essentially what this policy said was, we will respond to any signs of Soviet aggression with overwhelming and potentially nuclear force. The idea being we would deter Soviet aggression. The thinking was we don't want to get pulled into a conventional war with the Soviet Union. We don't want them to start pushing us, trying to gobble up little pieces of territory, maybe in Western Europe, and force us to meet them on every battlefield, fight them off in Europe, in Asia. We don't want to have to fight a whole bunch of conventional wars with them. We don't want the Soviets to think they can provoke that kind of response from us. So the message we should send to the Soviet Union is massive retaliation. Step out of line in any way. We will immediately escalate it to nuclear war. And thus, knowing this, the Soviet Union isn't going to try anything. That was the thinking. Arguably makes sense on paper. A good threat to make if you want to deter aggression. Don't try anything or we'll go to nuclear war. On the other hand, the concern was always, A, what happens if the Soviet Union thinks this is a bluff and they call that bluff. Are we actually prepared to go to full nuclear war over some minor act of Soviet aggression? And B, if we invest everything we've got into nuclear weapons, doesn't it limit our ability to engage in other kinds of conflicts if we for some reason think it's advisable to do so? Haven't we limited our options severely? And so when JFK came into office, JFK, by the way, 
after the fact, I think often viewed as this great liberal peacenik seeking cooperation with the Soviet Union and not wanting any kind of conflict, while certainly not seeking all-out war, was far more of a cold warrior in his day than I think a lot of people today recognize. JFK comes in arguing, we have to be prepared to combat the Soviet Union, but this mass retaliation idea doesn't work, largely for those reasons I just laid out. And so the Kennedy administration develops a new policy known as flexible response. And the basis of this policy is we want to develop a diverse set of military options so we can meet the Soviet Union at various levels of aggression. We will not respond to every sign of Soviet aggression with immediate nuclear war. Rather, we will be flexible. We'll try to match the Soviet Union point for point, aggression for aggression. We'll thus avoid any potential conflict immediately escalating to nuclear war, and we'll act as a better deterrent for the Soviet Union because they may think we're bluffing about our threats to use nuclear weapons if they show aggression, but if we're threatening a smaller response, they'll probably take that more seriously because it will be more plausible that we'd use less force in such a situation. And that seems to be what Heinlein is arguing for here, developing a capability for a flexible response. Yes, yeah, some conflicts, maybe we want to go to all-out nuclear war, but sometimes maybe we want a small strike team using throwing knives to deliver a message. And so I think that's what Heinlein is calling for. And so given all this, given Heinlein's clear opposition to Eisenhower's suspending of nuclear testing, given his opposition to the idea of massive retaliation and wanting more of a flexible response, I would suspect Heinlein was probably probably no fan of Eisenhower and probably would have been a Kennedy fan. I also, I tried to look this up and I can't find anything of Heinlein specifically talking about Kennedy, but I wouldn't be surprised if Heinlein was more of a Kennedy guy, someone who thought Kennedy had the right idea for how to confront the Soviet Union and win the Cold War. By the way, if anybody knows of any quote or any piece of writing where Heinlein talks about Kennedy, please let me know. I'd love to know if I'm right about this, but I suspect Heinlein was probably a big Kennedy guy. So, altogether, Starship Troopers giving us a darker, more pessimistic side of Heinlein, arguably a more conservative side of Heinlein. And so let's now deal with the elephant in the room. What about the accusation that Heinlein wasn't expressing support for conservative ideas? What about the argument that Heinlein was promoting outright fascism? Now, I'll lead off by saying I think these accusations are incorrect, but I can see where people are coming from on some of this. And as I was reading through this book again in preparation for this episode, there were some points where maybe I missed them or glossed over them when I read this when I was much younger, but there were points where I was reading where I was kind of uncomfortable, where I was like, oh, maybe the, like, the critics are right about this. Ultimately, given the totality of the book, I think the fascist accusations are unfair, but there is evidence to support that argument if you look. And just a handful of things that I pulled out while reading that kind of point to that. There certainly is a considerable glorification of the military throughout the book. Now, this doesn't immediately point to fascism. People can be patriotic and supportive of their military and so on without being fascist, of course. But hyper-militarism, extreme glorification of military and war is commonly an element of fascism. And you can 
argue that shows up throughout the book. While Heinlein would later write that he intended the idea of federal service in Starship Troopers to be a lot of different things, most of them not military, Heinlein would say and write that when he conceived of the idea of federal service to achieve citizenship, he thought most people, as he envisioned it, would not be serving in the military. Most people would be doing peaceful things, more like Peace Corps type stuff or mining or blue collar work. So he would later argue that, but that's really not what comes through in the book. What we see in the book is people signing up for federal service. They seem to mostly go to the military and they seem to mostly celebrate the military and what they do in the military. And we even see elements where sometimes military rule seems to trump civilian rule. Now, again, you have the knife throwing scene saying otherwise, but I'm thinking, for example, specifically during boot camp, there's a point where a criminal is executed by the military. And the background is this man signed up for the federal service. He got sent to the mobile infantry. He joined boot camp and then he deserted. He took off and then ended up killing a kid. And rather than let the civilian government deal with it, the military steps in and says, no, he was officially part of our organization. We take precedence here. We want him back. We want to execute him ourselves. And so you can't argue military has jurisdiction. He was technically a soldier, but it is sort of a weird element where the military seems to step in and take over from civilians for the sake of getting a hold of a prisoner who was probably going to suffer the same sentence either way. There are cases like that. You can see the military seeming to step in and overrule civilian government. There's also an argument for a lot of ideological indoctrination happening in this society. It's apparently federal law that every high school has to offer a class called History and Moral Philosophy. And essentially, this class is all about instilling this philosophy that Heinlein seems to be promoting in this book. This class seems to be all about expressing the idea that limiting the right to vote to people who serve the state in some way and the idea that conflict is sort of inevitable and so on, that all of this stuff is the right way to think. There really seems to be an official state ideology that is really pushed in the schools. And while the class isn't graded, and it seems like in a lot of places in the Federation, it's kind of treated as a joke. Kids don't take it seriously. They just have to sit through it. It's still indoctrination. It's still going on. And even if it's not really being forced at gunpoint, and even if you're not required to pay attention, it's still there. There's still an element of ideological indoctrination, and this has always been a core element of fascism and really of all totalitarian societies. One of the core defining features of totalitarian rule is the state develops and imposes an official ideology on the people and tries to indoctrinate the people into this ideology. And there's at least some of that going on. Further, you can argue there's sort of a Nietzschean element to some of what Heinlein is saying in the book. Heinlein makes a lot of the idea that you really don't have any rights, but those that you can fight for and protect. This comes through in that history and moral philosophy class. Heinlein taking a shot at the idea of unalienable rights that you're born with. Heinlein arguing you don't have any rights except those which you can protect. Emphasizing the idea of personal responsibility, that you have to 
to earn everything you have. It comes off as having sort of a Nietzschean will to power element to it. And a lot of critics of Nietzsche have argued that a lot of his ideas about these kinds of things were also inspirations for fascists and the Nazis. And further along these lines, throughout the book, Heinlein not only seeming to say that you don't have rights, but those that you can fight for and protect, but also seeming to elevate duty over rights, arguing that you really can't be a citizen until you agree to shoulder the burden of your duty to the state. And that's how you earn certain rights, like the right to vote. So this elevation of duty to the state over rights you hold as an individual, something that you could say comes off as a bit fascistic. And of course, finally, the, the big one is this civilian-citizen distinction. The idea that not everybody gets to be a citizen. We're limiting a right to vote. We're limiting your right to be a full, politically participating citizen to people who serve the state in some way. And so all of this taken together, an emphasis on duty over rights, an emphasis on the military and glorification of the military, and so on, taken together, I can see how people end up at fascist. But on the other hand, I would argue the larger trend of the book goes in another direction. First of all, Heinlein seems to go out of his way to make clear that civil rights, those non-political rights, are respected across the board. That if you're born in this society, you have your other basic rights, right to speech, right to travel, and so on. It's just the political rights that are excluded. Now, I realize saying just the political rights, like that's a minor thing. It's certainly not a minor thing, but it is a defense against the fascism charge. Heinlein doesn't seem to be setting up a society where everybody is just under the thumb of a totalitarian government. He seems interested in a society that protects and defends people's civil rights. He simply thinks that limiting political rights is the best way to achieve this. An example of how civil rights seem to be respected and protected across the board, a quote from an instructor during the officer training period of the book. An instructor says specifically, quote, personal freedom for all is greatest in history. Laws are few, taxes are low, living standards are as high as productivity permits, crime is at its lowest ebb. A statement that this government is small and unobtrusive. It is a government that tries to interfere little in the lives of individuals, a government that respects individual freedom. Further, civilians seem to hold equal status with citizens in the society in all other regards. We learn early on in the book that Rico's family are not citizens. In fact, they seem to look down on the idea of becoming a citizen, of giving up part of your life for this. They kind of mock it and so on. They oppose Rico going to join the mobile infantry. And they seem to have significant status within the society. They are apparently wealthy, well-respected individuals. Rico's father is a apparently a very successful businessman. So while making a civilian-citizen distinction, it doesn't seem that civilians are punished or looked down on in any way. And the only area where they are treated differently is they can't vote, don't get to hold office. Further, I'd point out that while the book seems to glorify the military to some degree, within the society Heinlein describes, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of glorification going on. Rico's family, other characters over the course of the book seem to look down on the military. They mock people who go in for federal service. They laugh at people who want to join the military. It seems that while Heinlein holds the military and people who serve in the military in great regard, the society he describes doesn't really place that same value on military service. 
Further, worth noting, Heinlein seeming to describe a society free of racial, ethnic, religious prejudice. The main character of the book, Juan Rico, is of Filipino descent. His native language is not English. And so, first of all, very progressive of Heinlein of the time to write a novel where the main character is not a generic white dude, but also a sign that it is a society that has progressed beyond racism. And while racism doesn't always technically have to be a part of fascism, it historically is. It's kind of a case where you don't have to be racist to be fascist, but it helps. So the fact that Heinlein is describing a society seemingly free of these kinds of racial prejudices is a sign that it's probably not as dark and fascistic as some might think. Also, to speak to the ideological indoctrination happening in the schools and so on, the counter to that is, while there does seem to be some indoctrination going on in the schools, they do seem to promote a certain ideology. Again, it's not required to recite this stuff or to believe it to pass the course. You don't need to get a grade in the class to graduate from high school, to get an education, to get a degree, to go on and advance in society. And there's no ideological requirement to join up and serve the Terran Federation. There's no indication that there's any kind of ideological purity test. So while the state does seem to be trying to promote a certain ideology, the indoctrination does not seem to be as severe or explicit as some might think. Finally, I just add that while glorifying the military, talking about the importance of the military and so on, Heinlein also makes clear that in this society, there is no draft. There's no conscription. And this is something Heinlein was very outspoken about throughout his life. Heinlein consistently opposed the draft. One of my favorite quotes of his is, I'm not going to get the exact words right, but something to the effect that any society that cannot defend itself solely on the basis of volunteers is a society that doesn't deserve to exist. So Heinlein opposed the draft, showing us a society where there is no draft. Any military service, any federal service of any kind is purely voluntary. Now, of course, you can point out, well, voluntary unless you want to vote. But still, at the most literal level, military service is completely voluntary. And that wouldn't really fit with a fashion society where if they need people in the military, you're going to the military. So bringing all this together, what does Starship Troopers tell us about Heinlein's political philosophy? Well, it's certainly one of the more conservative pieces of his writing. It seems to break with some of his other more liberal or hippie-ish or sometimes libertarian writings. But I say given the context of the time he's writing, it's understandable. And I'd also say there can be some consistencies found in what he's saying. I'd say ultimately, Starship Troopers presents us with Heinlein the Cold Warrior. This is the side of Heinlein we're seeing here. We are seeing a Heinlein who, as the Cold War is getting underway, is deeply concerned that the United States lacks the virtue, the moral fortitude, the moral certainty, the courage to oppose a dangerous force for tyranny. I think that's what Heinlein is thinking here. I think that's what he's trying to communicate. I don't think this is Heinlein abandoning his belief in individual freedom or some of his other more progressive values, I think this is Heinlein fearing that those things are going to be lost if the United States doesn't recognize the threat the Soviet Union poses, if the United States doesn't recognize the realist world we live in and doesn't take steps to fight its opponent, to fight a clear threat to its survival in the survival of 
the values he holds dear. Ultimately, I think that's what's coming through in this book. That's Starship Troopers to me. Starship Troopers gives us this side of Heinlein. Heinlein, the Cold Warrior. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Social Sci-Fi Show, on Facebook at Social Science Fiction Podcast, on Instagram at social underscore sci underscore fi, and you can email me at socialsciencefictionshow at gmail.com. Always open to comments, critiques, criticisms, what you like, what you don't like, and absolutely suggestions for future episodes. So please feel free to be in touch. Let me know what you think. Thank you for listening. See you next week.